Hi, this is Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there are some things we just do not talk about. But not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it cannot come in. Beloved, here we live beyond the wreckage. Every week, we experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other. We have a firm belief that everyone not only has a story, but that everyone is a story. So we share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week, we start right where we are. However, the dress code is your authenticity and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Frankly speaking, is one of my most ambitious dreams. I thank God for every remembrance of you and your gifts of ideas, your presence, your encouragement. Those are the gifts that inspire I can't do this show without you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. Cable casts on Cox and Verizon Fios, Channel 37 and Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch our archive, Frankly Speaking, with Tyra G. Podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like, you can email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For five years, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. has been telling thematic stories to touch the mind, the heart, and the spirit. Well, this week, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. is going to the movies. Uh, Perhaps I should say I'm bringing the movies to the radio studio. I'm walking around in the theme called, This Movie Changed Me. I borrowed it from National Public Radio. Krista Tivitz on being. What we are able to do in this format is hear actual scenes from the movie we've chosen. And this week, we've chosen Real Women Have Curves. The show will be accessorized by expert and creative commentary between NPR podcast hosts Lily Percy and actress Vivica Tovar. Now, it's appropriate to assume that every member of my intergenerational and multicultural listeners haven't seen the movie. 
So I'm going to generate our common thoughts phase by spending a few minutes summarizing the plot through the lens of renowned movie critic Roger Ebert. I want to warn you, there is strong language in the movie, however, it was rated PG-13. And I quote, Anna's boyfriend, Jimmy, tells her, You're not fat. You're beautiful. She's both. Real women have curves. Doesn't argue that Anna is beautiful on the inside, like the Gwyneth Paltrow character in Shallow Hall, but that she's beautiful inside and out. Love handles, big boobs, round cheeks, and all. Turn the lights on, she shyly tells Jimmy. I want you to see me. See, this is what I look like. Anna has learned to accept herself. It's more than her mother can do. Carmen Lupe Antiveros is fat too and hates herself for it and wants her daughter to share her feelings. Anna is smart. And she could get a college scholarship, but Carmen insists she go to work in a dress factory run by a family member. It is her duty to the family, apparently to sacrifice her future. The fact that the dress factory is pleasant and friendly doesn't change the reality that it's a dead end. You're at the wrong end of the economy when you make dresses for $18 so they can be sold for $600. Anna is an Mexican, excuse me, is an Mexican American, played by America Ferrara, an 18-year-old in her first movie role. Ferrara is a wonder, natural, unforced, sweet, passionate, and always real. Her battle with her mother is convincing in the movie because the director, Patricia Cardoso, doesn't force it into shrill melodrama but keeps it within the boundaries of a plausible family fight. It is a tribute to the great Lupe Ontiveros that Carmen is able to suggest her love for her daughter even when it's hard to see. There have been several movies recently about the second generation of children of immigrants. Indians, Filipino, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, and they follow broad outlines borrowed from life. The parents try to enforce conditions of their homeland on the kids, who are becoming Americanized at a blinding speed. While Carmen is insisting on her daughter's virginity, Anna is buying condoms. She insists in a view of life that is not her parents, and that includes college. If this movie had been made 10 years ago, it might have been shrill, insistent, and dramatic, overplaying its hands. Cardoso and her writers are more relaxed, more able to feel affection for all the characters. Yes, her parents want Anna to work in the dress shop of their older daughter, and yes, they fear losing her. Excuse me. Because they sense if she goes away to college, she will return as a different person. But the parents aren't monsters. And we sense that their love will prevail over their fears. 
The film focuses on Anna at a critical moment, right after high school, when she's decided with a level head and clear eyes to come of age on her own terms. Her parents would not approve of Jimmy, an Anglo, but Anna knows he's a good boy, and she feels tender toward him. She also knows he will not be the last boy she dates. She's mature enough to understand herself and the stormy weathers of teenage love. When they have sex, there's a sense in which they are giving each other a gift of a sweet initiation with respect and tenderness instead of losing their innocence roughly to strangers in a way without love. The film's portrait of the dressmaking factory is done with great humor. Yes, it's very hot in there. Yes, the hours are long. And yes, the pay is poor. But the women are happy to have jobs and paychecks. And because they like one another, there's a lot of laughter. That leads to one of the sunniest, funniest, happiest scenes in a long time. On a hot day, Anna takes off her blouse. And then so do the other women, giggling at their daring. And the music swells up as their exuberance flows over. They're all plump. But Anna, who has a healthy self-image, leads them in celebrating their bodies. I am so relieved that the Motion Picture Association excuse me, rated this movie at PG-13. So often they bar those under 17 from the very movies that could benefit they could benefit from the most. Real Women Have Curves is enormously entertaining for moviegoers at any age. It won the Audience Award at Sundance in 2002. But for young women depressed because they don't look like skinny models, this film is a breath of common sense and fresh air. Real Women Have Curves is a reminder of how rarely the women in the movies are real. After the almost excruciating attention paid to the world-class beauties in movies like White Oleander, a film in which more women suffered, the better they looked. How refreshing to see America Ferraro light up the room with a smile from the start. And now, my friends, for the feature. Hello, fellow movie fans. I'm Lily Percy, and I'll be your guide this week as I talk with Virgie Tovar about the movie that changed her, Real Women Have Curves. If you haven't seen it, don't worry. We're going to give you all of the details you need to follow along. When I was in 11th grade, my favorite English teacher, Mrs. Chose, changed my life forever. We were working on a scholarship application after class one day. She wanted to get me into this very exclusive writing program at Columbia University for the summer. And I was trying to explain to her that this was such a foreign thing to me, not just because of the money, which would be a definite issue, hence the scholarship, but because my parents would never agree to it. To them, the idea of me going away for a whole summer to be with a bunch of strangers, Americans, was something that they wouldn't even consider. And it was then that Mrs. Chose turned to me and said, you're always going to be walking between two worlds. You're always going to be an immigrant, and you're always going to be an American. 
And you have to make a decision about what that means for you. And when I think about the movie, Real Women Have Curves, when I think of Anna and her own struggle, walking between two worlds, as a Mexican-American living in LA, trying to please her family and herself, I can't help but think of that classroom with Mrs. Chose. Anna is an excellent student. I'd like to see her continue her education, go to college. Mr. Guzman, of course we want Anna to get educated. We have already discussed that amongst our family, but we need her to work now. She can go to college later. Senor Garcia, Anna's a very special young woman. She got herself into Beverly Hills High School, which is not easy to do, and now she can go even further. There are all kinds of scholarships. I'm sorry, Mr. Guzman, but tomorrow morning she goes to the factory to sew with us. May I ask you, Mr. Garcia, just to please think about college? I'll think about it. I'll talk to my wife. Vámonos, Anita. Real Women Have Curves tells the story of Anna, played by America Ferreira, in her first starring role. It's kind of hard to believe because she's been with us for so long, but this was her first movie. And Anna's reality as a Mexican-American living in her immigrant household and also navigating a very American high school experience. When I first saw America Ferreira as Anna, I was a junior in college, and my mind was blown away by what I was seeing on screen. This is what people mean when they say that representation matters. I had never seen another Latina who looked like me, wasn't skinny, had an immigrant family, was struggling to reconcile these two worlds within herself and within her family, but who also wanted a way out. Aren't you embarrassed? Of what? Look at you, you look awful. Mama, I happen to like myself. Right on, sister. You do? The two of you should lose weight. You would look beautiful without all that fat. Aren't you ashamed? I do want to lose weight. But part of me doesn't because my weight says to everybody, fuck you. Ave Maria, pero que boca. How dare anybody try to tell me what I should look like or what I should be? when there's so much more to me than just my weight. The movie really revolves around Anna and her mother, Carmen, played by Lupe Ontiveros. Their relationship is a tense one. We see them fight, we see them struggle, but all throughout it, we also see this raging love that is at the center of that relationship. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to watch the two of them on screen you know that they want to communicate with each other. You know that they want the best for each other, but they are missing each other completely. Mama? Mama? Mama, I'm going now. Would you want to come out and say goodbye? Mama? Please. 
The relationship between Anna and Carmen is one that writer and activist Virgie Tovar is very familiar with. Virgie is one of my heroes, truly. She has led me in understanding my body and my sexuality in an entirely new, different way as a Latina woman. And her work includes the book The Self-Love Revolution. She's a podcast host with the Rebel Eaters Club. And more than anything, what I appreciate about Virgie is her transparency about the grief and the struggle that comes with taking care of yourself, even if it means going against what your family wants. So I'm curious if, you know, just for for a couple of seconds, you would just travel back in time with me to the first time that you saw Real Women Have Curves and just think about who you were with, where you were, what you were feeling, all those memories that, that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, there's it's very vivid. Um, I remember... I was in college, I was at UC Berkeley, and one of the cool things about downtown Berkeley is that it has several independent movie theaters, all within pretty much walking distance of one another, um, and it was playing at the movie theater that is right kind of on the edge of the bottom of the campus. Um, and I remember I was in a class, it was called Fem Sex or Female Sexuality for short, and it was my introduction to feminism and it really changed my life. You know, in the midst of learning about like vaginas and patriarchy and desire and masturbation, um, the, you know, the movie Real Women Have Curves came out and we as a group, as a class, walked together um to the theater and we sat we took up this whole row in the theater and we watched this movie and then i remember afterwards like processing and talking about how inspired we were and how amazed we were and and it like so it's it's very vivid in my mind that experience yeah it's incredible uh, i was in miami we're we're the same age so i was also in college i was in miami having a very different college experience than you were <laughs> Um, let's just say uh, more repressed, uh, definitely oh more Catholic, uh, <laughs> more conservative, as you can imagine. And so at the time, like none of the things that that we're talking about that you were really discovering in your your feminism class were in like at all on my radar. All I remember focusing on back then in 2002 when the movie came out was like the body issue, right? Like the fact that I was watching someone on screen in Anna, played by America Ferrera. I was watching someone yeah. on screen who looked more like me than anyone I had ever seen. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just curious about what you noticed in that first viewing versus what you started to notice, you know, just as you started to to get older and, and come into your own. Yeah, I mean, I think similarly, um, you know, one of the biggest take homes for me at that time was around Anna being desirable. Mm. And and I think specifically that the love story in the movie, which even at that time, even though I didn't, my anti-racist or like awareness of race was not very high yet, mm -hmm. um, or I didn't have the language to talk about it. But I remember noticing that it was like an interracial love story yeah. and what that meant. Um, you know, that hit me at that time. I think as someone who had literally like come up you know i grew up in a really diverse immigrant 
community. It was mostly like Latin American and Asian families living in the community I grew up in. And all I got ever was like criticism and rejection from those boys. And then when I started actually experience like sexual debut, I started having sex. I found acceptance in white men. Mm. And what a what a weird yeah. mind trip that is. And but so I think like I saw myself in Anna in in that element in that way. Um, and then I think also, you know, I was really struck by her mother yeah. and her relationship to her mother. I mean, in in some ways, like I think at that first viewing, I don't know that I was in a place where I could entirely understand like yeah. or was capable of relating to Anna yeah like if that makes any sense it like, does I completely think, like, I, yeah I saw her as powerful mm-hmm. and I saw like I saw the story as really powerful but I don't know if I was quite ready to be like oh Anna's fat I am fat this is somebody like this is a huge deal because this is like a role model moment. I don't know that I could. I don't know if I was in. I was like still really deep in diet culture at that time and really deep in body shame. And so I don't know that I could have had that experience. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I do. And actually, it's funny you say that not being able to really have seen that at the time. I feel like it wasn't until I went through therapy in my mid 20s that I started to see Anna and her mother, Carmen, in such a different way is the toxicity of the relationship, right? Like mm, yes. one of the things that that wasn't clear to me when I first watched this movie, because I honestly thought this is just what being Latin American is, right? Like that's just the kind of relationship that a mother and daughter has. And it wasn't until I went to therapy and I was like, oh, no, this is actually not good. <laughs> this is like actually yeah. pretty toxic. Um, I'm curious yeah. about, yeah, what when you started to see... Um, some of the things that you just named, but also the toxicity of their relationship. Because now, you know, as a 30-year-old woman, um, having recently rewatched the movie, what I see in in Carmen, in the mother, I, I see her shame and her jealousy and the, just the self-hatred that she has that prevents her from seeing her daughter just really as she is. And, and not only that, but celebrating her daughter, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, honestly, one of the things that I learned that, and this was later in my life as an adult, I mean, yes, there's overt toxicity in their dynamic, but there's actually gender socialization tension Mm. as well. So, for example, one of the things that Carmen did, does, um, is, you know, she kind of uses her her health or her impending, the threat of her impending death or illness, right? Like as a control mechanism. And, and I mean, I grew up with that for sure. Thankfully I I had other Mexican friends who were like in a similar trajectory of the, of like the immigrant experience. And they were like, you need to read this. You need to read this. Mm -hmm. And one of the first books that was recommended to me was the labyrinth of solitude by Octavio Paz. But it's essentially kind of like a, it's like a comparison of like American and Mexican culture mm. written from the perspective of a Mexican person. And and one of the things that I learned through that book and through my own sort of exploration was like, I was socialized into like, like Anna, I was like living in a Mexican home, but I was being socialized into an American psyche, into an American yeah. aesthetic. And my grandmother who raised me wasn't, right? So she was taught ge- to do gender completely yes. differently than I was. So she was taught like in Mexico, as in l- a lot of Latin America, as in a lot of places where there are brown people, part of gender, part of how you like 
modulate how you create control in a society where you maybe don't have a lot of control is that you use suffering and the threat of death as a way to keep people in line, whether it's your Mm -hmm. partner, your husband, or your kids. And so essentially what we're seeing in the film is both toxicity and just two different gender performances yes. that that are oppositional and that create tension and i like i know, i mean girl i'm getting chills just talking about it like i know that feeling and i know the unreconcilable nature of that feeling right like we can work through our toxicity we can like repair each other we can learn how to talk to each other differently but like we cannot fundamentally change our cultural gender software and so it it, there's a lot of pain and I think you kind of see it for me like that final scene where Anna is like in New York and she's got her choker on and she's like you know I think that for me like when I think about that image it's that moment of kind of just being like you know I can find a place where I feel more comfortable, but there is no place for me where I feel completely whole. And I'm not getting that from my family and I'm not getting that from the culture. And I'm sort of, um, I'm like a walker between these two worlds. Like, and so, you know, you see, you get the sense in the final scene that she has, she has found herself and that she's confident and you can kind of feel that. But I think for me, it's like that there's a tension there. there yeah. There's not There's not a perfect reconciliation, you know? No, and, and that scene, the other thing that struck me watching it again this this weekend, getting ready to talk to you, which, which may just be because this has been on my mind a lot this year, which is the fact that she is walking in Times Square and she's got a smile on her face and she's yeah. she's free, but she's alone. And, yeah. and the thing that, that struck me about that is something I've talked a lot with, with my therapist this year. Which is there are consequences to the decisions that yes. I've made within my family yep. to be an independent woman, which means that I'm, I'm rejected and I'm also isolated from them. Like, so there are consequences to what Anna has done just in being part of this American culture. Absolutely. And, and I think like this on some level, you know, this is the journey of women, period. But it's certainly the story for like immigrant women, women of color. Um, And, you know, I literally am like in the weeds. Um, I'm right. I'm creating with with a collaborator, a course on grief, the grief that we experience when we do, you know, when we do body positive work or anti diet work, or we leave diet culture. I mean, really, like, it's the loss of full citizenship, right? Yeah. And we live in a culture where you're you if you're a person of color, you're never going to be a full citizen. And I think that similarly, you know, when you're talking about um coming from an immigrant family to refuse to be to to sort of be in line, right? Like it's yeah. a refusal to be to be in line, to be disciplined, to be the right kind of person. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it, it's it's like a rebellion on both ends right like you're not walking into like you're not walking from your family into a culture that's ready to embrace you with open arms yeah exactly you know (laughs) that's not happening either stella if you don't pay me how am i gonna save up any money for what forget it hi anna you're so selfish you expect me to do this dirty work for nothing this is dirty work this is a sweatshop Don't you get it? You're all cheap labor for Bloomingdale's. We are not cheap labor. How would you know what hard work is? All you've done is flip burgers. 
I'm grateful for what Amma has taught me, and I am proud of what I do. Gosa. I never wanted to work here in the first place, much less for nothing. See the trouble you cause? I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Virgie Tovar about Real Women Have Curves. I was first introduced to Virgie and her work through her wonderful podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, from Transmitter Media. This body-positive and food-positive show is about breaking up with diet culture. Virgie talks to amazing rebel eaters who will change the way you think about food and your body. Their second season just launched and features great conversations with guests like Francis Lamb from The Splendid Table, as well as fascinating stories about why we eat what we eat. Listen now on your favorite podcast app or at rebeleatersclub.com. I mean, one of the things that struck me again when I saw this movie, 20 years old, there's no way in hell I would have been able to go and get condoms like on my own, like Anna does in this movie. Like, I think I would have thought my my hand would catch fire if I touched a condom. Like, I'm pretty sure all these things uh, were running through my brain. But, you know, she goes and buys condoms on her own. She like there's that beautiful scene when they're about to have sex where he turns off the light. Jimmy turns off the light and she says, no, leave the lights on. And then she gets up. And, like, stands in front of the mirror naked. Yeah. And then she says, see, this is what I look like? Oh, my God. It, like, blew my mind. So I'm just curious because you're such a sex-positive person. Um, and and you've, you've really taught me so much about sex positivity. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how this movie strikes you in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think that it... It, it is really powerful. It was really powerful. I think, you know, like um, that that possibility of being worshipped, which I think as a fat person at that time, that was really mind boggling. Yeah. Um, I've never I, seen know, that I, since in a movie. Yes, totally. Um, so the sex was the sex scene was really, really powerful. And I think it really um, it created um an opening in my mind and a yearning for the possibility of it. Even even though I think at that time, I did not think that that scenario was possible. I think that the just the portrayal of it opened up my mind to the desiring of it, you know, and, and like, and the desiring of it in a body that is fat, not like, because I think for a lot of fat girls like me, right, like, um, you grow up and you think you're going to get that when you lose weight. Yeah. You're going to get that mm-hmm. when you're when you're finally thin exactly. and you get your quote unquote eating problems under control. And the possibility that like Anna's in this fat body and experiencing this thing that really like women have been socialized only very slender women get um, was a huge deal. And then I, I think like, again, the thing that really stepped that, that stood out beyond that really was kind of like the race dynamic Mm -hmm. of like, you know, it's just like, she's getting so much criticism 
from her mom inside of her house. And this white dude steps in as kind of like almost like a savior yeah. or like a salve mm-hmm. to that. And I had feel I remember having feelings about that even then. I think that's one of the reasons why it made me so happy when she kind of when he's like, so we're going to kind of keep in touch. And she's like, nah. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's right. She knew what she wanted. She wanted to have this experience with him. And she has really nothing else here. There's nothing else here for her. Yeah, I mean, I love that, too. I mean, frankly, like, you know, I want to believe that I would have made the same decision as Anna. But I'm like, you know, if I if Jimmy had been there, would I have? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'll write to you. <laughs> no. I'll email you. No. Jimmy, really. Don't worry about me anymore, okay? I mean, once you get to college, we won't have anything to talk about anyway, and I don't know, you'll probably end up meeting some skinny girl, right? I'm really gonna miss you. I think part of what you just named is that Anna is really aspirational. <laughs> like, I don't know if yes. we as like Latin American women are there yet, but like she is aspirational. And I think at, especially at that age when we watched that movie in our early 20s, like, you know, it was it was kind of the promise of what could be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love how Roger Ebert wrote this in his review of the movie. Um, Anna knows that he will not be the last boy she dates. She's mature enough to understand herself and the stormy weathers of teenage love. When they have sex, there's a sense in which they are giving each other the gift of a sweet initiation. I Mm. love that. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And I think, like, to your point around, like, your hand catching on fire, my first sexual experience was, like, so fraught it was so like I was so ashamed I was so terrified I remember it took like technically we had sex for like several hours but only because I would completely descend into sobbing tears every (laughs) single like we would you know there'd be like one thrust and then I would just fall apart like I'd want it and then I'd be terrified about what it meant that I wanted it and then we'd have to like process and then we'd try again it was just like a six hour (laughs) affair it was like nothing like Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty intense and weird. Um, I hear you. I hear you. No. And and for me, watching her navigate that and just really ask for what she wants and and desire in the way that she does in the movie. Again, it gave me the confidence to be able to not not at the age of 20, but but in my 30s, be able to say, particularly to my mother around sex, like that, that uh, aversion not as directly as Anna says it in the movie, but a version of that line that she gives her mother, right? That there's more to me than what's between my legs. That line. Totally. Oh, my God. Totally. It, it, it was such a, I, I have so many, you know, Latinx girlfriends who we talk about this and the, the reality. It's, it was even a trope in Jane the Virgin, right? Where it was like your flower and, <laughs> and like yes. how you have to really protect your flower and all this bullshit. You try. What? You lost your virginity, didn't you? Tom, you're imagining things. I can tell. You're not only fat, now you're a puta! You would say that, wouldn't you? Por que no te diste tu valor? Because there's more to me than what's in between my legs. 
You better not get pregnant and embarrass me. Me embarrass you? Oh, come on, Mom. You're the one who pretends that you're pregnant for attention. I am pregnant. You're not pregnant. Yes, I am. You're not pregnant, Mom. You're only pretending you're pregnant because you want a baby in the house. But you can't have a baby. I'm not your baby anymore. And that's one of the things that, you know, watching this movie now, you know, 18 years after that first time, you know, I'm a grown-ass woman. You know, I've created, like, really necessary boundaries within my own family. But there is such sadness within me in watching my mother play that role, right? The role that we've been talking about because of her generation, because of the cultural expectations around being a woman. Um, And just knowing that there's so much there that she will never be able to change. And, you know, that that really has only come with age that I can kind of have that compassion. I think for a long time I had a lot of resentment and anger toward her about it. And now I see that it's just not possible for her. And it won't be. It just won't be possible for her, even though it is possible for me. And I'm just curious, when you think about the trajectory of your life and, and kind of alongside this movie, how the two of you, how you and Real Women Have Curves have grown together, what you've continued to learn as you've gotten older. Kind of talking about relationship to to mothers, like one of the things that I really keep in mind is that I'm like the gender expression, the gender, the understanding of gender I have are time bound and place bound too. Mm. Um, like she looks at my expression of gender and she feels the same judgment that I might feel about hers. Yeah. She feels like I'm confused and out of touch. Yeah. I feel like she's confused and out of touch. My grandmother um, taught me this saying, which is like, the devil doesn't know because he's the devil. He knows because he's old. And it's like kind of a Mexican saying. Um, I've never heard that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so she has wisdom, even with like, you know, the stuff that is so new that came out of like women's, the women's rights movement, like women's liberation, second wave feminism. Right. She she doesn't know that world. Right. But like she understands systems in a way that I that are only really intellectual for me at this point Mm. because those systems she grew up with they're the same systems I inherited and we're not living in a world free of misogyny we're not living in a world free of sexism we're not living in a world where women aren't still expected to deny themselves in order to access the privileges that society should be giving to all of us and so she lived with that boot overtly on her throat yeah And for me, I had to read books to understand, even see that boot. Yeah, yeah. But but anyway, like, I mean, in terms of the trajectory and growing, like, I mean, I think that, you know, I do feel like Anna could have been you or me. Like, I I just I think I see the complexity of all of it where you kind of like full steam ahead. You're like, jump in. She's at Columbia. She's doing her thing. And then you have this kind of rude awakening that as much as you don't relate to maybe where you grew up you have similar points of tension with the people who are now in your in your social circle and in your in your professional circle whatever and then i think what's hard is is you've got to there's a lot of things that are hard about like growing up in that trajectory and like one of the hardest things is how much freedom there is. Like you can pick and choose. Like it's like you've got these two worlds. They're both robust. They both have upsides and they both have downsides. You get the freedom to be like, I choose this from here and I choose this from here. And then, you know, I think like part of the 
maturity process is really carving out your own femininity, your own meaning making. And, um, and I think one of the hardest things for me has been parsing out and I could see Anna on this trajectory too, where she comes to a point where she like forgives her mother and that, and honestly it's her leaving that gives her the space to be gracious. And so I think like similarly, as we mature and we grow, it's really difficult to look back, um, especially when you have a, like when you get your sense of Latinidad Mm -hmm. from your family and your family is toxic and it's abusive, it's really difficult to go back and you have to go back to like the ground zero, right? Like the the shambles and you've got to go through every, I mean, I think of like the images coming to mind is like, it's like that house that has fallen apart after an earthquake mm-hmm. and you got to go through and you got to like get rid of this stuff that like the asbestos, got to put that over there. Yeah. The like wood <laughs> chunks through the rubble. my house uh-huh. over there. And then this picture yeah. that like means a lot to me, I'm keeping that. And then more asbestos, more weird ass brick and shit I don't know whatever your house is made of Um, putting that in a box gonna go away putting that in the trash and then that moment where you're like oh that diary that like I wrote when I was a kid and like oh that meal that dish that like I remember and I think what's hard is like it's never not gonna be painful Yeah. and I think like that is truly the source of tension for people of color who are like really walking between worlds and have one foot in one world one because pretty much if we're that person it's because our family hurt us yeah most likely it's not just that like the allure of white culture was just so like irresistible <laughs> we couldn't like re- it's like normally like we're going there because we feel like really hurt yeah by where we came from and a lot of us dealt with that through achieving our fucking asses off yeah and that landed us in white world and so like our our journey is really that like you know for example on Anna's trajectory I could see there being a period in college where she's like not even you know she knows she knows she's Latin she knows where she comes from but she's not trying to like really you know she's trying to like assimilate she's trying to like jump in and be fully in that thing Mm -hmm. um and I think you know then you realize that doesn't work either. And then there's like the grief. There's just living with that grief and navigating that grief and bumping into that grief every day for the rest of your life. And like, and just kind of recognizing that, like, you know, one of the things that I grew up with all the time that my family taught me was like, life is hard. Life is hard. Life is hard. And I was like, no, it's not. You're making it hard because you won't go to therapy because you won't work because you won't leave this racist ass church because you won't take me to the right school because you won't, you know, like, and I was like, there's a million reasons why life is hard. Mm -hmm. And like all of them have to do with the choices that you've made and, and like that resentment and that rage. And then, at 38, you know, kind of like just coming into the realization that like, oh shit, right? Like I made totally different decisions than they did. And I am left with the reality that like life is hard. Like there is no escaping. And I think when you really talk about the the difference between Mexican culture and white culture, and I think that, that really what Kahneman was saying was like, life is not fair. Life is brutal. Don't even go out there because that the world is a terrifying place. Yeah. You need to stay here and to the known quantity because the world is scarier than you can even imagine. And, and Anna's like, nothing could be worse than being here with you. 
which I can relate, girl, I can relate to that. Um, and then you got into the world, but then you land in that awareness that God of men has. And then what do you do with that knowledge? Are you going to pass it on and, and create a toxic relationship with the people who you love with your potential children or not? And so I think that like, that's sort of like the, the full circle to me and how I relate to that story and how I see it like part two or part three or part seven of real women have curves, like maybe playing out. Yeah, yeah. There's a line that Anna's sister, Estela, I think is her name, says to her, you know, you're just like mom. I mean, she says like, Ama, I think they call her. That line really stood out to me watching it this time around. And I think it has so much to do with what you just said. They're not that different. They just had, they made different choices, but they both are still swimming in the same water. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Because like, I mean, one of the biggest things that I learned growing up and was socialized into as an American child was that life is happy. Life is good. Mm. Life is, and, and, and and that everyone else in the world, like certainly in Mexico, but most other places in the world are like, life is not easy. Life is hard. Um, And in fact, that's why we celebrate so hard. Yes. (laughs) We we party so hard in Latin America because we're like, life is hard and full of horrible things. So let's just take this moment to eat good food and drink and celebrate. Yes. What was that scar? This one. This one is you. That's a big scar. See. Look at you. Look at all of you. This is who we are, Mama. Real women. There's better ones. Doña Carmen. Poncha, let her go. Bye, Mama. Adios, Doña Carmen. Mujeres, let's finish the order tonight. The most famous scene from the movie, the movie, you know, whenever it gets talked about, it's always the scene when they're in the textile factory. And, you know, yes. Anna gets really hot. She because it's like boiling hot in there, but they can't turn on the fans because the fans, you know, have du- dust particles and the dresses, everything. So she basically she takes off her shirt and then all the other women start to undress and they're comparing like the stretch marks and like, you know, yes. the rollitos, a little like, you know, uh, body rolls and stomach and, and, and all those things. And I think folks, particularly American folks, um, white American folks, like I think they write about that scene so much because it's like they're talking about the realities of the world, their bodies, and they're also celebrating at the same time. Right? There's music and like Anna starts dancing. Like there's there's so much represented there around the bittersweet of our cultures. <laughs> I think it's one of the reasons why that scene continues to be written about and talked about. What's wrong with wanting to be thin and sexy? Rosalie, you don't get it. Well, I want to be taken seriously, respected for what I think, not for how I look. Exactly. Thank you. What if you don't think anything? Ay, Rosalie. Ay, I look like a cow. Rosalie, shut up. Stand up. I mean, now look at yourself. If you're a cow, then I'm a hippo. <laughs> and I'm an elephant. <laughs> and I'm orca. Ay, Rosalie, you are so skinny in comparison to all of us. No, I'm not. Look at my fat hips. Oh, come on. And my cellulite. You want to see cellulite? All right, here we go. You start 
started. Hannah! It's the bad cellulite. This cellulite. Mm -hmm. Yes. Excuse me, ladies. Estella! This is cellulite. Hi, Estella. It's not no. that bad. No. It's not. But you don't understand. I got all these stretch marks in my arms. And Gigi's look. That's small, honey. No. You want stretch marks? Here you go. Okay? I have stretch marks that go from north to south. Ladies, <laughs> ladies, let me show you stretch marks. Pancha! From east to west. Jesus. <laughs> she wins. Ladies, look how beautiful we are. To be rid of all these clothes and just let it all hang out. Okay, ladies, we have work to do. Come on. Who cares what we look like when no one's watching us? Probably that scene as a fat person had more impact than even like the sex scene because, I mean, it was literally like Anna's body had a need. Then she took care of it. Yeah. And I was just like, fat people are allowed to do that? Or like, I mean, I just like that moment where you're like, I'm hot. And that means I got to take some clothes off. As a fat person, that is a very intense moment, right? Like, all of us have been really hot and sweating. And like, and then this sense that you got to keep your body covered up, you got to wear black at any cost, yes. right? Like, no matter what. And, and like, I think that that scene, was so much about just being like, I have a body, it has a need, I'm actually gonna address that need. And you think about that time, like nowadays, right? Like we have like this, we have social media, like we have a body positivity, we have a fat liberation movement, we have like all this stuff that that really creates that kind of portrayal of fat people and like less clothes. At that time, that was not a thing. Yeah. There wasn't like Instagram no. or anything like that. No, there was no there were no fat women who had ever been on the cover of Vogue or Cosmopolitan. Fat shaming was not even a concept that was understood. And so at to really kind of like understand that film as really way ahead of its time and visionary um especially in this culture yeah god that's so true you know i was reflecting on on just how important this movie was when it came out and how it continues to be so important it's the first movie of its kind that was directed by a you know a white colombian woman Latin American cast, you know, various countries represented. I mean, America Ferreira's Honduran, you know, it launched her career. I'm, I, I think I underplay the impact that this movie had on me watching it at the age that I watched it. And even today, the impact that it has on me. And I'm just, I'm really curious to know what your answer to this would be, which is what do you think 38 year old Anna would be up to? Like, what do you think she is doing <laughs> Girl, 38-year-old Anna has been through therapy. She reads self-help books. Um, she's married to a white man, but has feelings about it. Um, like, she knows he's, like, she she's, like, accepted that, like, all right, this is, like, I mean, I think she came to the, the moment where her ancestors were, like, this is not a battle you're going to win, girl, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she's like, all right, I'm just going to let myself have this. I'm going to stop trying to – I'm going to stop dedicating my life to, like, decolonizing everything. And I'm going to dedicate it to, like, the three things I actually feel like I can decolonize. And she is like – I don't know. I'm like, is she a badass entrepreneur? Probably. She's definitely, like, a disruptor, whatever she's doing. Um, 
I feel like if I met Anna, Anna would be a friend. Anna would be somebody who, like, if she were in a room, I would spot her. And we'd probably be members, if we live, if she lived in San Francisco, we'd be members of the same, like, arts and letters women's organization or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? I love it. I think we've given Patricia Cardoso, the director, plenty of fodder for a, a sequel. I'm just saying. We, you uh, wrote the great. script right there. America Ferreira. Oh! Why not? We wrote the script. Okay, okay, okay. What do you think? Are you Anna? Are you Anna's mom? Are you a 38-year-old woman today? who is walking in her worthiness, understanding all the things that she has to offer. I'm not going to overlay any of your listening experience with my opinions. But I will say the show today gave credence to, frankly speaking, with Tyra G., is not a place of judgment. Just like Anna, right here, we live beyond the wreckage. I had a couple of thoughts I wanted to share that are general, that are general. First one, your scars are symbols of your strength. So in this next week, until we meet again, let these thoughts internalize. Maybe give you a little strength on that day when you're feeling really tired. Don't ever let or be ashamed of the scars life has left you with. A scar means the hurt is over and the wound is closed. It means you conquered the pain. You learned a lesson. You grew stronger and you moved forward. A scar is a tattoo of a triumph to be proud of. Don't allow your scars to hold you hostage. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls, the most powerful characters in this great world are seared with scars. See your scars as a sign that says, yes, I made it. Another thought, every little struggle is a step forward. In life, patience is not about waiting. It's the ability to keep a good attitude while working hard on your dreams, knowing that the work is worth it. So if you're going to try, put in the time and go all the way. I like this one. I hope you will too. Surrender is the essence of a happy life. Letting go is not giving up. Letting go is surrendering any obsessive attachment to particular people, outcomes, and situations. Surrender means showing up every day in your life with the intention to be your best self and to do the best you know how without accept, expecting life to go a certain way. Have goals, have dreams, aspire and take purposeful action, but detach from what life must look like. The energy of someone aspiring to create their dreams 
teamed with surrender, is far more powerful and creative than someone determined to create outcomes with a desperate must-have mentality. Surrender brings inner peace and joy, unless we forget that our outer lives are a reflection of our inner state of being. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. We've been at the movies. Please join us again. We are present on Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia Cablecast, Cox and Verizon, Fios Channel 37, and Comcast Channel 27 in Reston. But here's the thing, we are webcast worldwide on RadioFairfax.org. Remember, your seat at the table is guaranteed, and I look forward to next time. Until then, your job is to remember you are worthy. You are stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more loved than you can ever imagine. You are chosen. You are important. I want you to treat yourself like someone you love. Till next time, this is Tyra G. I'm here. I'm listening. I love you.